Welcome to Destiny Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Eric Smith. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit DestinyDayton.com. I'm ready to dive into the Word of God today. As you uh, may or may not know, I've been doing a series on faith, and I feel like God has just been speaking some powerful things to us through His Word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. What I'd like you to do today, we're going to dive into... Uh, a story in, in, in the Gospels that's not typically uh, highlighted as a story of great faith, but reading it and studying it this week, I, I think it illustrates great faith in a lot of ways. And uh, I'm going to have you turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And uh, in this case, if you'd like to stand for the reading of God's Word, that would be perfect. Amen. Are you here today? Hello? a little too quiet today. I know some of our folks who like to amen and shout are out of town today, but uh, you can fill in for them today and uh, give it your best amen. Luke chapter 7, I'll be reading out of the NET Bible, New English Translation. How many got it? Luke Luke 7 verse 36. All right. Now, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Then a woman of that town who was a sinner learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. Just take note. This sounds like another story in the Bible where an alabaster box was broken. and It's not the same story. All right. Jesus was anointed a few different times. This is a different time than that. All right. So there'll be no confusion for us here. She brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil, and as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and anointed them with a perfumed oil. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said, the Pharisee who who invited him saw this, whose name was Simon, right? We saw that, uh, we see that here in the story, Simon the Pharisee. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, so what's that tell you right off the bat? What does he think of Jesus? He doesn't know who he is even. He has no clue this is the son of God. He's weighing whether or not he's a prophet. Oh, he's much more than a prophet, right? So he invites Jesus over because he's curious about things that Jesus has said and done. He has seen miracles. It has stirred his interest. And so, you know, as a religious leader in a town, you know, he thinks it's probably the right thing. Let's invite this Jesus over and talk to him and see what he's all about. So he's sitting here and in the house comes this woman, uninvited, kneels behind Jesus. And you saw what happened. And Simon, the Pharisee, is thinking to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. It doesn't say what kind of sinner she is, but I think we can do the math and figure out a woman who has a bad reputation in a small town probably is what you think she is. It's also ironic here that he was thinking to himself, if Jesus knew about this woman while Jesus was understanding what his thoughts were himself. Jesus not only understand who the woman was, he understood what Simon was thinking. Verse 40, and we see that proved here. So Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 silver coins and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? 
And Simon, the Pharisee, don't confuse him with Simon Peter. Simon answered, I suppose the one that had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You see, this went on for an uncomfortable amount of time. Are you seeing this picture? Crying, kissing his feet, not stopping. I want you to see this picture, all right? She has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfumed oil. Therefore, I tell her, her sins, which were many, are forgiven. Thus, she loved much. See, it almost sounds here that Jesus had already had a previous encounter with this woman on the street. Maybe he healed someone in her family. Maybe he healed her. Maybe he cast a demon out. Something happened where she knew about Jesus. And she, she felt something tangible. When Jesus forgave her sins, something tangible changed in her. You see, this is what I want to tell you. How do you know you're saved? When you're baptized? No. See, religion will tell you if you get baptized, you have the water of baptism flowing off your face. It's important to be baptized, but baptism doesn't get you saved. You can take communion. You can go take it officially when you're 13 years old. You can take your first communion. And you know what? That will not save you either. What is the evidence of salvation? When my life has changed. Hello. Come on, religion is squirming in its seat right now. You know you are saved when your life is changed. And we have sold a brand of grace in America that is false in many cases. And it's gotten people to think, if I could check enough boxes, I'm a good enough person. But understand, we see a lady here who had a horrific reputation. She was an outcast in the city, an outcast in the town. Everybody knew who she was as Pharisee, which is kind of odd that he kind of knew her reputation. Kind of makes you wonder what he might have been doing behind the scenes as well. That's pure speculation. But she had had an encounter with Jesus that changed her. And when she found out, she's like, I got to get back to where that man is. The man who forgave all of my sins. I've got to get back to him. And I've got to get to his feet and thank him because I was a hot mess last week. I've been a hot mess for 30 years. But Jesus came and he changed everything. And he has touched me. And I am new inside. You see the evidence. If you know Jesus, are you different today? Because when Jesus comes and you're saved, sinners stop sinning. Adulterers stop committing adultery. Liars stop lying. Thieves stop stealing. That's how we know we've encountered Jesus when our lives are changed. All right. I'm just reading the text. I better get back to it. Here we go. I can't even get through the text. All right. Therefore, I tell her her sins, which were many, are forgiven, and she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. He reiterates. But those who are at the table, (laughs) they did a lot of secret thinking, didn't they? I imagine this to be like a lot of church services. People do a lot of secret thinking, sitting there, oh, well. 
They were sitting at the tables saying among themselves, again, these weren't disciples of Jesus, right? These were were people who really didn't know what to do with Jesus. And they thought among themselves or whispered among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, I love this. I love this right here. Your faith has saved you. We'll talk about rarefied faith today. Rarefied faith. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Holy Spirit, may your word come alive inside of us. Holy Spirit, may you just explode a bomb in our hearts today. In the name of Jesus, God, I pray you'd break every wall, every chain, every bit of resistance right now. God, we just break it in the name of Jesus. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would have your way in this place. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. You may be seated. So last week we talked about Gideon in this series and about the faith to triumph in a backslidden culture and when we don't feel worthy, right? Gideon was a great example of that. And here we see in Luke chapter 7, there's a woman anointing Jesus. And as I read this story, there are some things that jumped out to me about rarefied faith, the kind of faith. And and don't get me wrong, when I say rarefied, I believe it ought to be common for believers to have the kind of faith that we've been talking about for the last several weeks, but we don't see it as much as we would like to or hope to. So thus the title rarefied, but there is some faith in this woman that is doing some powerful things. And there's some interesting things about this woman's faith that I think are noteworthy. So this woman is a sinner. She's an outcast and she comes into the house uninvited and she comes from behind Jesus on her knees, which just expresses her humility, right? She just comes humbly before the Lord and she's weeping and kissing his feet and just washing his feet with tears and then taking probably her most valuable possession. Because the one thing that we can grab in this story that is true throughout the New Testament, if you had some kind of perfumed oil in an alabaster stone jar, that was something that was very expensive. That was something that was very costly. And while she was doing this thing with the perfume on his feet, everyone was looking at her with disdain. Thinking if Jesus only knew this woman's reputation. And they were still trying to figure out who is this Jesus. And we see this picture, this woman just over the top, weeping, wiping his feet with her hair. I'm sure there have been some of us there that have been a little bit indignant. They go, what is she doing? Okay, that's enough. We get it. We got it. And yet she continued. And I think this says everything. And I want to highlight to you this morning quickly why her faith was rarefied and extraordinary. It's interesting to me that nowhere is it recorded that she even spoke a word to Jesus. You can look in that passage and correct me if I'm wrong. But I'm pretty sure because I've read it several times. She didn't speak a word. It's not recorded where she spoke a word. Perhaps they had talked previously, as I speculated a moment ago. Perhaps Jesus had done something for her family or for herself earlier. But here we have a woman who was simply referred to as a sinner. Talking about the great names of faith in the Bible. The great acts of faith. This woman doesn't even get her name mentioned. 
How would you like a story told about your great faith and all they took the time to say, well, it was some sinner. Yeah, some guy from Dayton, Ohio. All I know is he was a sinner. He didn't have that great of a reputation. But Jesus washed away his sins and transformed his life and said, your faith has saved you. Ooh. And she walks in uninvited to the one person that she knew could transform and probably had already transformed her life. This is what I want you to see about rarefied faith. It's always more about demonstration than about words. It's interesting when you talk to people about giving their lives to Christ or faith in Christ, they immediately want to tell you how good they are. I was thinking about that this week. You know, I've, I've talked to people about Jesus. They want to tell me what church they've been to. I could care less about that. Church is full of people that are going to hell. That's, that's irrelevant knowledge to me. But we all have this habit, right, of trying to proclaim our own goodness. That's, to me, that's a number one sign. If I'm talking to somebody about Jesus and they come back and say, well, I go to church and I got, I got this and that. And, and, and they're just describing their deeds. They're describing other things. I, I, I think, you know what? I don't think they've fully gotten what, what Christ has done for them because they are still trying to defend themselves. Here is a woman who spent zero time defending herself. She said nothing. Her actions did all the talking. Her demonstration did all the talking. Oh, that the church would be filled with people that would demonstrate their faith in Jesus and post less on Facebook. That would demonstrate with acts of love and acts of power and acts of faith what they believe their God to be in heaven instead of trying to argue with people and correct people. Come on, are you here today? I find it fascinating that Jesus complimented her faith, yet she never spoke a word. Ooh. I have a question for you this morning. I'm going to ask a few because these occurred to me while I was praying and studying this week. How would people know your faith in Christ if they were deaf? What if they were deaf and blind? They couldn't read your T-shirts. They couldn't see your bracelets. How would they know? In other words, if the world around you could not hear your words, how would they know you are a faith-filled follower of Christ laid down unto death and to the King of Kings? How would they know that? Just a question. You see, here's something that she did. Though no words, she brought acts of worship to Jesus. She brought acts of humility and surrender. And one thing that I notice, and I think it's powerful, I want to touch on it. She had plenty of this. She had plenty of tears. Plenty of tears. I want to tell you, tears are powerful. You have tears when you're going after God. And when you've come to the end of yourself, tears are when you come to the end of your wisdom, the end of your abilities, the end of your excuses, the end of your resources. Here's another question for us in seeking God and spending time with God. You say you love Jesus. You say you're righteous. Let me ask you this. When is the last time you had tears when you were seeking God? When is the last time you wept before the Lord? You see, dry eyes can sometimes be indicative of cold faith. There is a history between tears and our God. 
Isaiah 36, 5, 38. I'm going to need some help back in the booth, please. There we go. It came. It happened. Christmas came early this year. Isaiah 38, 5. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, God, your ancestor. I got it, brother. Thank you so much. David says, I have heard your prayer and I have what? I have seen your tears. Psalm 126, those who shed tears as they plant will shout with joy when they reap the harvest. Those who shed tears as they plant will shout with joy as they harvest. There's something from the New Testament. When Jesus saw her weeping, the people who had come with her weeping, he was intensely moved in spirit and greatly distressed. I want to tell you something, church. Why are your eyes dry? When is the last time you have cried before the Lord? When is the last time you become distraught with thinking, man, I need God to show up in my life. God, I just need more of you. Jesus, I just want to be close to you. Jesus, I ask that you would touch me and fill me. When is the last? time that we had tears in our eyes. You see, I think the modern church, we become super cocky and confident ourselves, but we have altars that are empty. We have prayer meetings that are empty. We have eyes that are dry. And that's a sign that we need revival, my friends. Tears. There is power in seeking God in tears. And this woman seems to pour her tears on Jesus for an uncomfortably long time, right? When you read this story. I'm wondering, are we giving ourselves to prayer long enough so there can be a breakthrough in tears? There is power in tearing and praying around an altar or in a prayer meeting or in your secret place with God. The old Pentecostals would call it tarry. T-A-R-R-Y. It's not a word we use a lot today, but it means we wait. We will wait upon the Lord. We will get in His presence. We will seek God. And we're not going to be after 30 seconds. Oh, it's, been, it's been so long. Oh, it's only been 30 seconds. Help us. God, break our hearts. Soften our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name. You see, I believe our ability to receive supernaturally from God is in fact directly tied to the pattern of Pentecost, which is a pattern of gathering together and waiting on God in prayer. And the reason why we don't see miracles anymore as much as we used to, as I'm speaking generally, we've seen them here and other places have seen them. I get that. But I'm saying in general, the reason why church has lost power is because it no longer tarries before the Lord. It no longer waits before the Lord. It no longer seeks the Lord to the point of tears. And we wonder why, you know, that's why church, well, let's cut service to an hour because nothing's happening. We make people sit through the worship. We make them sit through a sermon. And then when we just dismiss them, right? When God wants to do something. Okay, everybody go home. Have a great time. Let it, you know, that, see you next week. But God is crying out. God wants to connect with his people. God wants to pour out power on his people. God wants to touch his people again. But I want to tell you, he wants us to seek him. Because that is the mandate of his word. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Jesus said, do testament here we go flip it over he said seek and you shall find knock and the door shall be open ask and it will be given but we have lost the ability to tarry and to wait before the lord in the altar nothing are you ready 
nothing says faith more than someone engaged in prayer. Nothing says humble reliance upon God more than someone on their knees, more than someone on their face, more than someone spending time in prayer. You know what prayerlessness speaks? It says, I got this. I don't need to pray. We'll give lip service. Oh, we should pray. Prayer is important. I've had so many people tell me prayer is important and they don't have a prayer life. It's like we got this, again, a box-checking mentality. We know the right answers. We know prayer ought to be important. But golly, don't ask me to do it. I don't have time. I'm busy. I've had people say, hey, you know what? Maybe on Wednesday night instead of prayer, let's do like a teaching. Really? What shall I teach on? Someone said, well, what do we teach on prayer? And I almost laughed. I almost fell out of my seat. I'm like, wait a second. We can either come and actually pray or we can sit and talk about prayer. Can we not see the problem with that solution? Because there is power in the tears that we shed seeking God. Jesus notices them. You see that are on their screen. When Jesus saw their weeping, when he saw that, he was moved intensely. Some of you lack a move of God in your life because you have failed to be broken before the Lord. You have failed to allow the Lord to break the things that He wants to break inside of you. There is power. There's a level of expectancy that is born out of tears and prayer and humility. This woman had that. This woman had I find it ironic. There's the religious men who had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Memorized. And here's a woman, a sinner off the street. She she was far more advanced in her faith than they ever would have been. She was far more, far more advanced in her faith. Always interesting to me that it was the people like this that seemed to recognize Jesus far faster than the religious. That's why I believe as, as church folks, we need to check ourselves constantly. Because I want to tell you, I've seen church folk miss a move of God. The second we think we have it figured out, the second we think we're okay, the second we think we don't need prayer, we don't need to come to a prayer meeting, we don't need to have, we don't have, we, 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 we start eliminating and we have good, oh, we got good excuses, we're busy, oh yes, our other God that we serve, busyness, yes, yes, I'm familiar with him. I've had to send him to hell a few times before he sent me there. Because I'm not exempt either. i got to watch myself. Paul said that. Paul said, I better be careful. I'll be disqualified. My title, my calling, it is irrelevant to the fact that i got to keep myself burning for the presence of God. Next in this woman's display of faith, we see a willingness to sacrifice something valuable. I'd like to tell you that rarefied faith means there's a willingness in our hearts to sacrifice something valuable. To the Lord. Y'all with me? Now, one thing that this anointing, this story has in common with another anointing that we read about that Mary anointed Jesus, right? Poured it over his head. Is that this woman broke an alabaster, which is a stone, expensive stone jar. It contains this expensive oil. It was perfumed. And these in in the New Testament times, when you see an an alabaster jar, perfumed oil, just think money. Money, right? 
if those of you in here, you like to wear cologne, like fancy men's cologne or women's cologne, right? You, you don't want to just get high karate at Walmart, but you want to go to like Kohl's or, uh, you know, a, a nice store and, and buy like, you know, a, a designer cologne, right? That's called a lot of money. Was it Jason up here one time that said about some cologne costing $500, right? That, that's it. That's it. Perfume is still expensive, Right? That's why some people opt for Old Spice and high karate. That's fine. I'm not throwing shade on that, but I'm just saying there we understand what expensive cologne. And this woman, uh, with all of her reputation, she had at least one thing that was worth a lot of money. And I'm guessing, I, I assume this woman was not married, probably as a single woman, probably a single mother. She had one thing that she thought, in case of emergency, break glass. Right? See, I get it. Being a single mom can be scary. You're alone. You're trying to do the job of two people. My hats are off to you, single moms, by the way. I love you very much. This was like maybe her backup. If things go south, if I'm too ugly for any man to ever want me, if I'm whatever she would think, I've got this, I've got this alabaster jar that I could sell and still feed my family for a little while longer. And she took that and she poured it on Jesus' feet. Are, are you understanding this story? She took her backup savings, perhaps, and she poured it out on Jesus' feet. You see, my question is, how can faith in Christ, faith to believe Christ, exist outside of sacrificing something valuable to Him? I'd like to say this morning, if your faith hasn't cost you something, you have a right to examine the genuineness of said faith that you claim to have. When I was in college, a Bible college specifically, I, I went with a couple of guys who were students with me, and they uh, were tremendous high school athletes i i remember a couple of guys had division one possibilities for basketball they turned it down to come to bible college there's no scholarships at bible college you pay your own way had another guy went he was like a a a, a, a state champion wrestler he had d i forget where the school was a division one offer to go wrestle for this school i forget which one it was but he gave it up and i said man i said you and i wrestled in high school so you know i i remember having a conversation with them and he said you know when god called me i gave it all up to come here and humble myself and do what god wanted me to do i had another student he was a high up in Wendy's. You know Wendy's hamburgers, 365 different ways. I don't think they advertise it that way anymore, but they used to, right? Wendy's, he was a CEO, a high up in Wendy's. He drove a Porsche. That's how much money he made. Not a used one that you get on Facebook Marketplace for $7,500, but like a nice one. Well, people saying, I drive a Mercedes. Yeah, but it's 30 years old, man. Come on, we get it. When God called him, he quit his job, six-figure salary, and said, I am leaving it all to follow Jesus. You see, when you 
bump up against some people like that and you see that, you know what? To follow God's call is worth it all. When you come to Jesus, when you decide to follow Him, we all have to make those decisions. And you might be saying, well, what's your point? You see, there's a connection with that rarefied faith and sacrifice. Again, if your faith has cost you nothing, then you have a right to question it. So what has your faith cost you, friends? Relationships? Money? Popularity? Remember, Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. Some of you may be in this position of trying to serve Jesus and serving yourself or your old life or your old stuff. I love it when it gets quiet. That's how I know I'm dropping bombs on the right spot. So I'll just stay here for just a few more minutes. You see, some people mistakenly think they have a demon when what they really have is just another master in their life they need to get rid of. I have a demon. No, you don't. You need to die to yourself. You need to stop serving two masters. You're trying to serve an old boyfriend or an old girlfriend or a relationship, or you're still worried about your money. You're still worried about, you still have the wrong things, number one. The wrong thing. There is a big you sitting on the throne in your life when it's supposed to be Jesus on the throne. We got the wrong things, and we're serving two masters, and we can't figure out. Nothing seems to work. I'm still struggling with this, and I'm still having this issue, and I'm not getting, you're not going to have victory in either realm, friends. If you want freedom from your addictions and the other masters, in the words of Jesus, sell out completely and surrendered faith to Jesus and he will make you whole today. No need even dragging this thing to another day. I just I speak these words be free in the name of Jesus. If you want freedom from addictions, if you want freedom from other masters, it's time. And I'm not saying this as I roll the dice and hope it comes up sevens. I'm telling you, you can leave today free from your addictions and free from your other masters in the name of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we have a tendency to hang on to things that we should have let go of a long time ago anyway. We need to offer it to the Lord. We need to surrender it. So this lady, she takes, this woman, she takes this thing of great value. Especially, you know, she's an outcast of the community, so she probably had nobody standing in line to help her. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people saying, well, they, they did it themselves. They deserve it. You ever heard that before? Well, they made their bed. Let them lay in it. Said Jesus to no one ever. How many times Jesus could have said, you know what? If you hadn't been sleeping around, you wouldn't be in these problems. Isn't that wonderful? He would just say, go and sin no more. Be healed. Your sins are washed away. Follow me. Come on. Let's put that behind you. Let's press forward. Let, he wouldn't beat them with their past. He wouldn't shame them. He wouldn't say, oh man, if you would have turned left instead of turned right, you would have had a much better result. Well, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. I appreciate that. I think a lot of Christians play the role of Captain Obvious. Yeah, we got it. Understand it. Yes. But that's not how Jesus dealt with people, nor should we. There's great power in that level of faith that says, I will sacrifice it all for the Lord Jesus because of what he has done for me. I think we heard the prophetic word this morning about giving it all. That's really what salvation is. Some people today try to get saved by giving 95% of themselves. You're, you're not saved. 
You may have been baptized in a church. They may give you a nice little certificate hanging on your wall in your hallway at home. It doesn't mean you're saved. You are saved. It's an act of grace. It's an act of power by the living God. When you fully surrender yourselves 100% to the Lord and turn away from your sin. My question for you today, another question is what valuable thing are we breaking over Jesus that shows our love and devotion to him are real? What are we breaking over him today? What are we spending on him? Finally, and then I'm closing something very powerful. I see in this passage. Rarefied faith has this quality that it always takes Jesus. At his word. It always takes Jesus at his word. Jesus's final recorded statement to this woman just wrecks me. Your faith has saved you. That's that word sozo, right? It's you've been delivered. You've been rescued. You've been healed. Therefore, he says, go in peace. That word shalom, go in shalom, which means go in wholeness. Go in wholeness. Everything about your life has been broken, but I'm declaring you whole right now. Go in wholeness. You've been an outcast. You have been on the outside. You have lived a a very sinful life. And yet you have repented. You've turned. I have forgiven your sins. Now you are whole. Now you are complete. Don't listen to what anyone has to say. I am telling you, go in wholeness. You've been made whole. And another place where she didn't talk, and I love this because I hear a lot of people talking today. But Jesus, are you sure? Jesus, are you sure? Could Jesus really forgive that? Jesus, you know what I did, and you saw and you heard, and God, you you know what I did. You know about my past. You know about the horrible things I've done, the things that I thought no one else knew about. Jesus, can you really forgive me? No, 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 no. We take him at his word. See, it takes faith to be saved. You know that, right? And it's not just believing a story. It's not a 10 point story. We check all the boxes and say, yep, I believe it. Mm, yeah, I'm good with that. How about this one? Mm, I hope that it's okay. We believe what the man, the God, speaks to us when he says, you are clean, you are free, you are now renewed, you are now transformed. We believe him. Her faith in Jesus had brought the forgiveness of her sins. And and the Lord just highlighted this to me because I believe many people struggle with this simple thing. Has Jesus really forgiven my sins? Could Jesus really forgive what I've done? And some think, you know, hey, my past has been too rough, sin too horrific. What I did was far too ugly. Can I really be forgiven? Can it really be that easy? Well, it didn't come easy. But yes, Jesus can really forgive whatever you've done. And I'm convinced many don't fully understand what God's grace has done because we fail to fully understand what we were lost and where we were headed, hell, without him. There's the words of an old hymn that just came to my mind. The hymn's called At Calvary. And it sums it up as about as good as I think it could be summed up by a person. And the lyrics of the song say, Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. Knowing not it was for me, he died at Calvary. 
But by God's words, at last, my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law that I had spurned. Till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. You see, many are trying to operate in God's grace while they continue in their sin. That's the American greasy grace lie. And I believe this happens because we don't realize the cost of sin and the damage it does and the separation it puts between us and God. It's like we're trying to get his forgiveness and continue in our sin at the same time. And the little statements cue you when you hear them. Well, no one's perfect. It's usually what someone's saying who's living in sin, trying to justify it. Well, no one's perfect. Well, no one claimed to be perfect. But if we're, if we're living in unrepentant sin, we haven't met Jesus yet. If we are emboldened in our sin, trying to make excuses for it, trying to make allowances for it, and acting like, oh, it's no big deal, the more we try to justify ourselves, the more it signals the fact that I haven't gone to Calvary yet. I haven't really met Jesus because my sin is an offense to a holy God. And it was so offensive that he came and bridged the gap, right? And sent Jesus. So I love that. The lyrics, years I spent in vanity, pride. That, that summarizes people trying to justify themselves. Nothing wrong here. I don't need prayer. I'm good. I'm good, man. Knowing not it was for me, he died. And then finally, by God's word, at last my sin, I learned. Then I trembled at the word of God that I had spurned. I believe the church needs to get its tremble back. I don't think you can get saved without some tremble. I really don't. There has to be something that pricks our heart and convinces us. Someone said earlier, hey, there's like a wall or something. But you know what? God's got to break those walls down. I can't bend a man or a woman's heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. You can resist him at your at your own peril. But I want to tell you, it should concern you if you can sin and you can live just in the world and not not please God, not have that on your radar and not bother you. There is something wrong inside. When we encounter Jesus, we understand the offense of our sin. We come to the realization that it will cost us our soul if we continue. So if we leave it, if we repent of it, this is what this woman had done. She left her sin. And it's just prophetic, right? She left her life of sin and she went and found Jesus and kneeled at his feet. (laughs) I love that. This woman understand who she had been and where she was going. She also realized who Jesus was and what he could do. And this is why Jesus, perceiving the disdain from those gathered at the table, said, let me tell you a story, boys. Suppose there were two debtors and they were forgiven their school loan debts. One school loan debt was $500,000. And one school loan debt was only $500. And the debt collector decided to forgive both of their debts. Which guy would be happier 
and love it more that his debt was gone. And Simon said, well, probably the guy that got $500,000 forgiven. And Jesus said, Eureka. Exactly right. I want you to know, my friends, that's why we never should criticize anybody's worship, anyone's passion for the Lord, because you don't know what God has forgiven them of. Uh, you know, it gets, it gets wearying in the body of Christ. See people criticize their, their worship amounts to them sitting with their mouth open during worship like flies are flying in and out and that they have the audacity to accuse somebody or to, to point somebody out who's jumping or dancing or screaming. You don't know what God has done for them. I saw that happen during revival in the 90s. So many times people, they, they would get set free from some wow, wow things. God would set them free. And their worship was just unbridled. And they would just sometimes do crazy things. And people would say, well, why, are they, why are they doing that for? And I just want to go up to somebody and say, how dare you? You don't know what that man went through. You don't know what it took to get him to come to Jesus. You don't know everything God has forgiven her of. You don't know what God had done for this lady. But if you've encountered Jesus and you've turned away from your sins, I want you to understand it's extremely important that you really know and believe. Hear me, hear me, hear me. You've got to really know and believe to take Jesus at his word. Because when he declares you are forgiven, you are forgiven. When you are cleansed by God, you are cleansed. It takes faith to take Jesus at his word. How would we believe him for anything else? If, if we question his ability to forgive our past and our sin, how will we trust him for our future? Jesus told her to go in peace, go in wholeness. Her life had been anything but whole. But in one moment, Jesus washed away her sins and made her whole because she walked boldly in a room, uninvited, into a house and put on some rarefied radical faith in Jesus. She took Jesus at his word and was forgiven and made whole. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. This message and other resources are available at DestinyDayton.com.